0: A quick warning before we get started. This podcast is about drug overdoses, and this episode in particular really gets into the lived experiences of addiction. There are references to abuse and domestic violence. There's also some swearing. So take care of yourself and whoever is listening with you.
1: Previously on Death Resulting. A friend of mine, Liz,
2: hits me up and she's like, hey, I got some money and uh, I want to buy some dope
1: she did not deserve to die and we as a society have to think about and and different people can have different opinions about what value to place on that human life
2: i mean prosecuted by charging people with drug-induced homicide that ain't gonna stop nothing because you never get the big the, the, the big guy they out there they don't never touch no drugs they drop it off and give them somebody so you know I've been in jail most of this time now, so sometimes I catch myself and I still feel like I'm 14 years old.
1: It's about six months before Josh Cook's sentencing hearing. I'm walking down a busy street in Manchester, New Hampshire, with Josh's mom, Shannon Nealon. We're talking about Josh, and then... By chance, he calls.
3: Hi. Hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Guess what I'm doing? What? I'm walking down the street with microphones in my face.
2: Down Valley with Street. Microfo- oh, you're talking to uh, <laughs> Jason or whatever?
3: Yeah. With a big, That's furry microfo- microphone on a stick.
1: That's awkward. It is a little awkward people keep looking at us from their cars as they drive past.
3: All right, call me. I don't know what to say. Well, I think there's something cool to say and if you do call me back.
1: <laughs> All right, I love
3: you. I right, love you too. Bye.
1: Josh calls Shannon almost every day. She's his main contact with the outside world. She's also Josh's biggest advocate. When I called to see if she would talk to me about Josh, she didn't hesitate. We met outside in a park and ended up walking around talking for hours. It's cold out, and Shannon pulls the sleeves of her hoodie over her hands. Every now and then, she puffs on a small vape pen. Sorry. Shannon is a good storyteller, and she has a lot of stories to tell, mostly about her and Josh's life before Josh was charged with death resulting. Like Josh, Shannon spent a big part of her life struggling with addiction. As I'm recording this, she's been in recovery from opioid addiction for three and a half years. Shannon tells me about what addiction did to her life with this total, unflinching honesty. A lot of her stories are incredibly tragic. But somehow, Shannon often manages to find levity in them. It's this spark she has. One of her friends, who's known her since high school, describes her as feisty. Shannon, who's just five feet tall, uses the word chihuahua. Honestly, I might go with the word fearless. What happens right after Josh calls is a good example. We're walking to a jail. It's not the jail Josh just called from, but it's somewhere both Josh and Shannon have spent a lot of time. Shannon brought it up so many times, and it was only a couple blocks away. So I asked her, do you mind if we just walk over there?
3: So my inmate number is actually so old. I'm like in the twos, which means I've been coming here since the 90s. Um,
1: This place is officially called the Hillsborough County House of Corrections. But everyone calls it the Valley Street Jail. Shannon talks about it like she's coming back to her old high school.
3: This is Valley Street. This place loves me, hates me. Oh, that's a sergeant.
1: So we're walking around the outside of the jail, this angular brick building with narrow slits for windows. And as we turn the corner, we see these two guards walking right at us. I'm like, oh, they're here to tell us to leave. But not Shannon. Shannon recognizes them.
3: This girl doesn't like me very much, but we'll say hi. hi. Hi, I thought you worked at a treatment center. I did, for like a year with my brother. Oh, yeah. Do you think they'll let me into booking oh. for the reporters? Oh, probably not, but you can try. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try.
1: You yeah, try. Right. If you heard some nervous laughter in the background, that was me wondering what Shannon means by let us into Booking." I thought we'd maybe just stand outside and talk. I mean, we can't just walk into this jail. Shannon walks to this side door of the jail, like definitely not the main entrance, and she just opens it.
3: No, this is isn't this is how you get in. Gonna...
1: Uh... We're in this little vestibule, not much bigger than a phone booth. Inside, there's a second door, that one's locked. And through a window in that door, we can see into the booking area where people are processed when they come in or out of jail. We don't see anyone, but next to the door hanging on the wall, there's a phone. Shannon picks it up.
3: Hi, um, what are the chances um, that I can come in? The, so I'm an ex-inmate that is just doing a story on recovery and they want to see where your booking looks like? Well, I know you're not gonna let me in, but can I get into this little room? Great, thank you. They should stay on the phone, to Don't hang up. The supervisor's coming. They've probably been watching us. Hi. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right, bye. If you guys, if you're gonna have any film crews here, you need to contact us Monday through Friday. Right, those are so many lawsuits.
1: Yeah. So that's Shannon, fearless. The kind of person who tries to talk her way into a jail where she was formerly incarcerated. She's been through a lot. But what's happening to her son right now, Josh sitting in jail, waiting to learn how many years he'll be in federal prison, it's eating her up.
3: You know, like I understand that he is an adult and he makes his own choices and that's easy for a lot of people to say to me, you know, to cheer me up or whatever, but they don't know what I've done to him. I don't know. I'm in therapy over it. Like I've tried everything to kind of, you know, my doctor is huge in my recovery and he's like, he makes me put this stupid, stupid thing on my mirror and I did because he told me to and I have to listen to everybody. And it just says, forgive yourself. And I'm like, you know, I'm still not there.
1: The federal death resulting law doesn't leave a lot of room for subtleties. The only question that matters before the law is whether Josh gave his friend Liz the drugs that killed her. Yes or no. Guilty or not guilty. But Shannon got me interested in other questions, like why and how. How did Josh end up homeless and suffering from a severe addiction before he was even 20 years old? Why did the systems that were supposed to help and protect him fail? The answers to those questions say a lot about how Josh ended up charged with murder for his friend's overdose. This is Death Resulting. I'm Jason Moon. When Josh was in juvenile jail years ago, he saw a therapist. Later, when Josh was charged with Death Resulting, that therapist wrote a letter to the judge who will decide how many years he gets. The therapist tells the judge Josh needs treatment, not punishment. She writes, Quote, Joshua is a victim of his circumstances. In that letter, the therapist, who's also a psychologist, writes that when Josh was 16, he was screened for something called adverse childhood experiences. It's an idea based on a huge and hugely influential study, which showed that kids who experience trauma are more likely to struggle as adults with addiction, depression, even shorter lifespans. There are 10 categories of these adverse childhood experiences. Most people experienced at least one as a child. About a quarter of people experienced three or more. In her letter to the judge, the therapist writes that Josh has experienced nine. In just the last few years, researchers have started exploring the idea that these adverse childhood experiences can be transmitted across generations, as in kids who grow up with parents who had childhood trauma could be more likely to experience it themselves. And I kept thinking about that idea with Josh and Shannon. It's hard to ignore the ways their stories seem to rhyme. And it's why I want to start the story of Josh's childhood with Shannon's. Shannon says she grew up in a home with addiction and abuse.
3: They were always at the bar, they were always bringing people home from the bar, and I was always just alone.
1: And Shannon says the same was true for her mother, Josh's
3: grandmother. So she was brutally abused her whole life. Met my dad, and um, he was a way out. So she latched on, got married, Got out of the house, got pregnant with me, had me.
1: Shannon says she had a difficult relationship with her mom growing up. She says she just couldn't stay at her mom's house. Sometimes she'd run away. As a teenager, Shannon says she was sent to live in a group home, a place called the Protestant Youth Center, later described by one of its reverends as a place for kids who, quote, trusted no adult and were destined for a life of failure and regret, marginalized by society. When Shannon got out of the group home, she met a guy and she got pregnant with Josh. Shannon had Josh at the same age that Shannon's mother had her, 19 years old. Josh's dad was 20. Their relationship didn't last. Shannon says they would get in these huge fights.
3: And we were doing it in front of Josh. Josh was granted a baby, so he was like six months. But luckily my mom came and she's like, I'm taking the baby. And I was like, okay, that's cool. (laughs) You know, thank God.
1: Josh is taken into his grandmother's house when he's two years old. His parents are still in the picture, but Josh lives primarily at his grandmother's until he's five. And
2: that house was pretty hectic. She was always fighting with her boyfriends and uh, chasing us around with wooden spoons. And uh, Her boyfriends were never that good of people screaming at her, screaming at us all the
1: time, hitting her, stuff like that. Josh is already experiencing his first childhood traumas. Traumas that it seems like he almost inherits. Meanwhile, for Shannon... Josh going to live at his grandmother's was the start of a new chapter. She was only 21 years old.
3: That's pretty much essentially where the partying began. There was a club going every night of the week, and I was that girl. I, was, I knew where dollar drink night was every single night. I think I didn't do cocaine all of four days that whole decade.
1: When Josh was five years old, he was moved again this time from his grandmother's to his father's. Josh's dad, Derek Cook, decided not to talk to us for this story. He told me he was just too personal. Derek runs a roofing business. He's married with kids, Josh's half-siblings. When Josh was young, Derek was the more stable parent. According to that letter from Josh's therapist, Derek worked hard to repair his relationship with Josh. Josh says he was a good dad. Still, Josh says as he grew up in his dad's house, he often wanted to be with his mom.
2: It was like I almost, uh, I'm not sounding like creep or anything, but I almost like obsessed over like calling my mom, like trying to get her to just come pick me up and spend time with me, you know what I mean? And my dad would talk bad about my mom, like, "Yo, your mom isn't even around, like, why are you freaking out? And I'd freak out on him, I'd be like, don't talk about my mom, ever,
1: you know what I mean? Like, don't talk about my mom badly, like... Like, I was wicked protective over her. Shannon did try to co-parent when Josh was placed with his dad, but it was hard for her. It was emotionally complicated.
3: And that's where the guilt and shame started. And I started compensating for giving him away so freely by, you know, buying him stuff that he didn't deserve. And, like, yeah, I don't know, like... That's when I was afraid to yell at him or ground him because I just felt like such a piece of shit for putting him through the last five years of his life. You know, and that carried on.
1: Josh's childhood starts gaining this kind of negative momentum. The early generational trauma he experienced seems to propel him toward a legal system that's full of its own kinds of traumas. At around twelve, Josh is diagnosed with attachment disorder, a behavioral disorder that affects a child's ability to form and maintain relationships. He develops behaviors that adults struggle to control.
2: I would just skip classes every day. Um I'd smoke weed before I went to school and like uh go in there and just be out of my mind on high on weed and the teachers would know it.
1: In the sixth grade, Josh has his first contact with the legal system that he'll be in for the rest of his life. He's caught stealing $5 from a classmate to buy pot. He's expelled from school, and he's charged with robbery. The judge puts him on juvenile probation. He's about 11 years old. Derek and Shannon come up with a plan. They figure maybe Josh can get a fresh start in a new school. They decide to move Josh again. This time, he's sent to live with his mom and visit his dad on the weekends. It's been 10 or so years since Shannon has lived with Josh for an extended period. She's now married and raising her two new children. Shannon's also struggling with addiction. She's using cocaine, and she's also taking methadone to treat an opioid addiction. Josh says living with mom was a lot different than living with dad.
2: My mom's not a bad mom, but she's, she's very laid back. Like, she let me leave at all hours in the day, and a lot that came back at night, but she really, there really wasn't any rules there. She tried, but there really wasn't any rules.
1: Josh is a teenager now, and this is where the juvenile legal system really starts to wrestle control away from his parents. Josh keeps failing the drug tests from his juvenile probation officer. Eventually, he violates his probation so many times, he's moved again, this time by the courts. A judge sends Josh away to his first group home, then his second, then his third. He runs away from that last group home. We heard that story in the first episode, 14-year-old Josh in a stolen minivan cutting his dad off in traffic. When Josh is about 14, when he's supposed to be entering high school, instead, he's sent to juvenile jail. It's like adult jail, except it's for kids. There is a school, and some behavioral health services are offered. In juvenile jail, Josh gets more diagnoses. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, Oppositional Defiant Disorder, Post Traumatic Stress Disorder. His addiction is also diagnosed. He has what doctors call opioid dependence severe. Josh would end up spending about three years locked inside New Hampshire's juvenile jail, what should have been his high school years. And there's this one incident that maybe more than anything else I heard from Josh and Shannon just seemed to epitomize how dangerous their relationship had become. It happens when Josh is 16. He's seeing a therapist at the jail, the one that would later write the letter to the judge. The therapist zeroes in on Josh's relationship with his mom. She gets Shannon to start coming to family counseling sessions at the jail.
3: They, the therapist wanted me and Josh to start building our a normal relationship.
1: Shannon is still in active addiction at this point. And like she said, she has all this shame and guilt about her son. And so when he asks her for something, she just has a hard time saying no. So one day, Josh tells Shannon he wants her to bring him something. He says that the parents of other kids are smuggling drugs into the juvenile jail.
3: I'm like, these mothers are bringing in shrooms to these freaking kids. Like, are you crazy? So, you know, he just wanted to fit in. So, and I wanted him to fit in. And I always fell short with him, you know. So I made it up by... Sure, I'll do, I'll bring you whatever.
1: During one of these family counseling sessions with the therapist, Shannon makes good on her promise. She sneaks in a handful of pills for Josh.
3: I brought him breakfast, because we are allowed to bring food in there. And I, and I put them in a bag, and what it was three Tylenol PM and one Xanax. It wasn't Percocet or anything like that. And... I put him in a bag and I put him under the egg and he just ate the egg and somehow he just, you know, put it in his mouth and just left it there.
1: When he thinks the therapist isn't looking, Josh moves the pills from his mouth to his sock.
2: The counselor, she lets my mom leave and then she's like, what's in your sock? I was like, what? And she's like, what's in your sock? And I'm like, nothing's in my sock. She's like, really? She's like, she's like, do you want me to call everybody down here and just give me what's in your sock? And she calls uh, the response team down there on her radio, and they're all running at me. So I grabbed the, all the pills, and I throw them in my mouth, and I start chewing them to try to protect my mom. You know what I mean?
3: I laughed. Everything's fine. Like, my, my job's done. Like, you know, therapy session done. Like, and I get back on the highway, and I get instantly start getting phone calls from Derek what did you give our son? And I was like, what? Nothing.
2: They uh, tackled me and they brought me to the hospital and tried to pump my stomach with charcoal and I refused, so they took my blood. And They were like, where's your mother? And I was like, I'm not telling you. You crazy.
3: Derek's like, Shannon, what did he just swallow? He's like, he's, on, he's in an ambulance right now on his way to a fucking And Like, my heart just sunk. And I, was, I wasn't going to lie. Like, that was my kid. Three Tylenol PM and a Xanax. He's like, what the fuck? Blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, oh, I'm in trouble.
2: My mom has like a messed up way of trying to protect me and like help me. I, I like told her on the phone. She, I was like a couple of weeks away from going on a, getting a parole hearing and she wanted me to stay out of trouble. And I was like, I can't mom. I can't sleep. Da-da-da-da-da. I haven't been sleeping So it's kind of messed up sounding, but that was her way of trying to help me sleep. And it just, it was all bad. We got caught.
1: Shannon later spent a year in jail for this. She was charged with possession of a controlled substance, smuggling contraband, and endangering the welfare of a child. For Josh, it meant he wasn't allowed to see his mom for the rest of the time he was in juvenile jail, about another year. So Josh and Shannon both face consequences for that episode. The juvenile jail, where it all went down, did not. Which is worth noting, because when Josh looks back, the person he finds most responsible for the trauma he suffered as a child is not a person at all. It's the juvenile jail itself. Officially, the place is called the Sununu Youth Services Center, But it often goes by its old name, the Youth Detention Center, YDC. I think if I never went to YDC, I I could
2: could have figured out how to be a normal member of society on my own.
1: There's a ton of research to suggest that Josh may be right. Putting kids in jail, in general, is not only bad at improving their behavior, it can actually make their behavior worse. Multiple studies from different states on kids released from juvenile jails found that 70 to 80 percent of them were rearrested within two or three years. And then there's what juvenile jail can do to a child's health. One study followed health outcomes for over 14,000 kids into adulthood. They found that the longer a kid spent incarcerated, the worse their physical and mental health was as an adult. I spoke with the therapist who worked with Josh at the jail. She didn't want to be recorded, but she told me her experience working with Josh helped solidify her belief that children should never be incarcerated. And so three years in any juvenile jail was already extremely likely to set Josh back in life. But the particular jail where Josh spent those three years had its own set of serious problems. Since January of 2020, more than 430 people have come forward to say that they were physically or sexually abused while incarcerated at the facility as kids. The allegations range from 1960 to 2018 and name as many as 150 different staffers as alleged perpetrators. So far, 11 former staffers have been indicted. When I asked, Josh said he didn't want to talk about this particular aspect of the juvenile jail. And so, that was Josh's childhood. A series of adverse experiences. The systems that were supposed to support Josh, the systems that were supposed to support his parents, they all failed. Schools expelled him. Group homes shuffled him from one to the next. Juvenile jail failed to treat his addiction and put him at risk for physical and sexual violence. When Josh was 17, he got into a fight at the juvenile jail. The state charged him with assault, but this time they charged him as an adult. It was a seamless transition from the juvenile legal system to the adult one. Not long after, Josh met Liz.
0: Yes, it is. The only thing, I, I do have dogs, so they sometimes bark. So let me just bring one. out. Oh, I have the shepherd in my room. All right, you go out there, bubba. Okay, I'm going to be on the phone for a little bit. Try not to bark. Okay, sorry. I talk to them like they're people.
1: This is Amy Bisson. She's one of Shannon's oldest friends. And she looked out for Josh.
0: It's always been kind of like Auntie Amy. You know, things were going bad. He would always call me. Um, it was just, it was like a second mom when Shannon couldn't be.
1: Amy wrote a letter to the judge in Josh's case, too. In her letter, Amy pleads with the judge to make sure Josh will have drug treatment in prison. She writes, I'm begging you, please. Amy enters the story in 2016, two years before Liz's death. Josh is in jail, adult jail this time. He's 18 now. He's addicted to both heroin and meth. Josh is about to get out of jail, but he can't go stay with Shannon because she's in jail, too. She's still serving time for smuggling the pills to Josh at the juvenile jail. Josh doesn't want to go stay with his dad because he says he knew he'd get kicked out for using drugs. And so Shannon asks her old friend Amy if she'll do her a huge favor.
0: And I made her a promise, you know, when Josh gets out, I will, he will come with me. I knew that what his addiction, I knew about that. Did I think that it was going to be as hard as it was at the, mo- at the time when we were planning for it? No.
1: Amy tries to give Josh lots of structure and rules, but she has trouble enforcing them.
0: At one point, I noticed the screen that was out of one of my windows, so I told me he was sneaking out the window, coming back in.
1: Amy says there were lots of confrontations over whether Josh was allowed to have a phone, over whether people had been over at the house while Amy was at work. Amy has a full-time job at a health insurance company, and she's trying to raise this teenager, her friend's kid, who has a serious drug addiction. She's doing this alone. So it wasn't easy. Amy and Josh fought. But Amy says they also loved each other.
0: He loved me. He respected me. It just was hard for him to get out of that, those negative ways.
1: As Amy said this, I thought of when Josh told me he sometimes feels like he got stuck at age 14, how he says jail and drugs stunted him. Amy has this ability to separate Josh's behaviors from him as a person, like a kind of split-screen view. On one side, she sees the addiction, the behavioral disorders, on the other, she sees the little kid who used to go to daycare with her son. And she can do this with even the toughest moments she had with Josh and his addiction while he lived with her.
0: At um, one point, Josh spit in my face. And I know he didn't He didn't want to do it. He didn't mean to do it. It's just it's, it's, the addiction was taken over, taken over his, his mentality and his everything, you know.
1: Then... Things get even harder. Josh's mom, Shannon, gets out of jail. And she doesn't have anywhere to go either. So Amy lets her move in too. At this point, Josh is 19. Shannon is 39. And Shannon and Josh's addictions reinforce each other's. They start using heroin together. Not in front of Amy, but she says it was obvious enough.
0: They would bring people and say, oh, they're just coming over to visit. I know they're not just coming over to hang out and chill. You know what I mean? I knew that. I don't want them here. End of story.
1: Amy reached her limit. The stress of trying to take care of two people in active addiction was crushing her. She decided she had to escape it all. She told Shannon and Josh she was moving out of state.
0: I couldn't do it anymore because I worried every day that I may come home and find one of them dead. from an overdose every
1: day. Amy says she liked some of the people who came over to use drugs with Josh and Shannon, even if she didn't like what they were doing in her house. She says she could see that they wanted to stop using, but couldn't. One of the people who would come over to use with Josh and Shannon was Liz, the woman whose death Josh would later be charged with.
0: She was remind me of Myself, she was professional, she was a working girl, she, you know, she worked, and she was just super sweet, super nice, and respectful, super respectful.
1: Liz was in her early 30s. She had a college degree, worked in HR at a healthcare company, had no criminal record.
0: The night before I moved, she called me and she said, can I come by to say goodbye to you? And I said, absolutely.
1: Amy says she was still packing the last few boxes when Liz arrived. Liz would have been about three months pregnant at the time.
0: And she's like, what's all that? And I said, oh, just stuff I'm, I haven't been able to sell, so I'm just going to put it in storage. I said, you want it? Take it. And I gave her my, you know, what I had for winter clothes that she could, you know, fit into, jacket and things like that, because she didn't have a jacket on. And, um, and she had told me she was pregnant that night as well. So I said, hey, take whatever you want. And I just asked her to promise me to keep an eye on Josh and Shannon, and she said she would. When I found out about Liz, it broke me. It broke me for her. It broke me for Josh. I knew what was going to happen to him. I knew how the state was going to look at it. Just. So, and I was scared. I was scared for him because he was never given a chance.
1: I read through the, uh, the prosecution's sentencing memo, and they, they talk about how, you know, a, a stiff penalty in a case like this will send a message to other people, you know, to, to not traffic in, in fentanyl or give fentanyl to other people. Do you think that works?
0: No. Josh isn't a trafficker. Not even close. He's an addict. Yeah. It was
3: actually, so the van, his van, the paddy wagon drove him in there. That's booking right there, so that's the cell I was in. So I was there talking to the booking officers, just waiting, and I was actually just
1: That jail that Shannon and I walked to, that's the jail where police took Josh on the day Liz died. And by total coincidence, Shannon was there that day too, on a separate charge. Just as Josh was arriving at the jail... Shannon was being let out. Shannon says she was in the booking area, that room we looked in on through the window in the door. Shannon was changing back into her street clothes, getting ready to leave.
3: And as I get changed and get put into, like, the little holding cell and booking right there, they bring in the chained people together. And it's Josh.
2: She's like, oh, that's my son. She's like, because the, the people already know she's my mom. But she's like, uh, she's like, oh, that's my son. Josh, how are you? Joshua, are you all right?
3: I was like, are you OK? Like, he just shook his head and he broke down, chained to a bunch of other inmates.
1: Shannon says in this moment, somehow, suddenly, everything that she and Josh survived, it all catches up to her.
3: And it just broke me, like, I was just like, how much more of this can we go through, you know? I can never explain the feeling of that just surrender. Like, in that moment, like, I had no desire to get clean. Like, I didn't even think it was ever possible for me. But just, like, seeing seeing him, And knowing that, like, he's not okay and he's in trouble. Like, you go back to, like, when he was a little kid. Like, I just never wanted this for him.
1: Shannon was released from jail that day on the condition she entered drug court. Drug courts have been around since the 80s. They're an alternative to jail or prison. Each one is a little different, but in general, they use a mix of intense supervision, addiction treatment, and the threat of jail to steer people into recovery. And evidence shows drug courts work, or at least that they're more effective than simply putting people in jail. Shannon is now an example of that. Her life looks remarkably different today. She has a job, her own place. She's taking classes. She even told me she got her driver's license back after paying off thousands of dollars in fines. This is what Shannon wants the judge to see. That if she can recover, so can Josh. That what happened to Liz is not something that Josh did to her, It's the same thing that's been happening to all of them. Addiction.
3: My addiction was way worse than Josh's. Like, I've done way worse than Josh did. And here I am, like, in college again, and I have everything back. And and they took the time to get me into treatment. And what do you know? I recovered. Like, so what are you saying? That my kid isn't worth that?
1: Next time, on the last episode of Death Resulting, Josh goes before the judge. It was
2: wicked fucking contentious. It was just really hard to stand up there and keep on saying, I don't agree, judge. I think this is wrong, and I I need to tell you why.
1: Death Resulting was created by the document team at New Hampshire Public Radio, this episode was reported by me, Jason Moon, and Lauren Chuljan. The executive producer is Jack Rodolico. The executive editors are Dan Barrick and Rebecca Lavoie. Additional editing by Lauren Chuljan, Todd Bookman, Felix Poon, Gabrielle Healy, and Christina Phillips. Callan tansel Sudduth was our production intern. Fact-checking by Sarah Sneath. Artwork, distribution, and promotion by Sarah Plord. Music by me, Jason Moon. You can find more of our reporting online at nhpr.org slash documents.